What's going on, everybody? It's Matt, a.k.a. the Lumberjack Landlord, and your eyes do not deceive you. One of my absolute favorite guests in the entire world is Simon, the Uneducated Economist. My man, how's it going? It's good to see the Camry's still in shape. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're still we're still rolling the Toyota right now. I got the fuzzy dies hanging. I love um, it. Thanks. Yeah, things are going really well. You know, it's a beautiful day here in the Pacific Northwest. We had a couple of rainy days, but it's sunny here this Sunday morning. And yeah, I'm excited to talk with you this morning. Yeah, rainy days in the Pacific Northwest. I never would have guessed it. Yeah, but beautiful. Knew that part. So yeah. guys, the reason that we invite Simon on the show, aside from him just being an absolute blast, and I love catching up with him off camera. The other reason that we invite him to the show is because he gives a unique perspective because there's nothing in it for him to be pumping up something that doesn't need to be pumped up. He's telling us exactly the way it is. And so the reason I want to invite him onto the show was talk to him about, Hey, this is what I'm seeing as a landlord. This is what I'm seeing about my tenants because he knows I'm a little bit different. I'm a little bit cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs over my tenants. I want to make sure that we're taking care of them. We're trying to give them heads up, trying to get them ahead of the game as best we possibly can. We actually had three more tenants this year, buy a house, move out and buy a house. So Super excited for them for that. I'm, I'm really excited that they were able to do that. That's, that's always one of the things we uh, help our tenants aspire to do. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to kind of just jump in and kind of give you kind of a state of the state and then stop me if you want more information on a topic, because I think a lot of landlords are in my position experiencing something really different than a lot of the crash videos that were always bombarded within our feeds. And I want to kind of just give people a lay of the land, not based on a chart, but based on your interpretation of the data that I have kind of being a landlord. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear it. Uh, you know, anecdotal evidence to me is so much more superior to the charts and stuff because we're, we're at the forefront, right? Yes. We are the boots on the ground. And those economists and analysis who work for those big corporations who are pumping out all this information, they're looking for the data that we are living every day. That's right. So, yeah. I if, any, if anything, we're getting it 60 days before they're getting it. <laughs> exactly right. You know, and, and then and you know, got to think, then they got to put it out there and all the investors have to start, you know, compiling that stuff and figuring out what it is that they're going to do. Yeah. That's why, you know, that's why what we do is so important, you know, exactly. and getting out this information. Exactly right. So one of the things I kind of, where I kind of wanted to start out with is inflation. Inflation is absolutely crushing my tenants. It's crushing them. And the biggest, I think the biggest thing that I've ever seen is I've been doing this for 22 years and I have never seen electric bills and oil bills as crazy insane as they are right now. We just, um, we just paid, or we just saw the, the price of $5 and 79 cents per gallon on heating fuel. And that is normally for the last, um, from I'd say 2015 to 2020, that kind of five-year period, it was probably two and change, 240, 250, 270, up and down in that range. But Simon, 579. I mean, and your typical, your typical apartment or unit that's going to have, you know, two, three bedrooms, you're going to go through probably... 600 gallons, seven gallons, no, in a, in a, in a winter, six or 700 okay. gallons in a winter. So you're talking so you're about hundred gallons a month. Uh, you're probably, yeah. In wintertime, you're probably going to average. You're probably going to average because the beginning of the season, the end of the season are pretty light. 
but like 90 days is pretty heavy. So uh, usually right around Christmas time, January, February, you're talking, you might go through, if you got, if you like it really warm in your place, you might go through 200 gallons, you know, and yeah. And in like a January, February, you could go through 200 gallons. You're going to go through, you know, 50, 75, a hundred kind of the couple months before and the couple months after. But yeah, I mean, you're talking probably 600 gallons um, through the course of the winter time. And again, it used to be about, you know, call it 250 a gallon at, at, uh, at five, at 400 gallons. So, you know, you were right around a thousand bucks and now you're almost six bucks a gallon. And we've not even hit the peak of what oil is going to cost for the season, right? You know, you talk about a lot on your channel, geopolitically, what's going on in that part of the world and, you know, oil producers and what's happening there. What are your, what are your thoughts? What do you, what do you kind of see unfolding there over the course of the next few months and, and how it relates? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, one of the things about my channel that I found to be quite unique from other, other channels out there is that I had a very, very different take on the inflation scenario that is coming um, or that we are experiencing. Uh, a lot of people looked at the Federal Reserve and the money printer go burr as the reason why prices has gone up. Uh, I looked at it more as a supply chain breakdown. And the shortages from that is the reason why the supply and demand imbalances cause the prices to go up as high as they have. Um, Ultimately, even though we see this inflation hitting food and energy, that in itself, because that is the main um, expense of the average person, that is going to have a deflationary impact on the economy. If you are spending your money on food and fuel, you do not have money to go on vacation or buy TVs or buy Nintendo or anything else like that. So you end up like stuck in just this life of spending your money on food and fuel and on nothing else. That is going to be very difficult on business, on economic um, activity, um, transactions as far as like, you know, uh, velocity of money. All that stuff is slowing down because of the food and energy prices going up. Um, again, that's going to start leading what I feel eventually is going to start leading into more recessionary impacts. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think the thing that I've told a lot of my tenants and what we've tried to do is, you know, we had a tenant, you know, basically get a little bit chippy with me over text messages, you know, saying that my rent was ridiculous. And I just answered back. I said, I'm $250 a month less than what section eight and housing will pay. And I'm $400 a month under what the market is. I'm doing my best to help you out through this time. But are we, I mean, that's what I think a lot of people misunderstand. Um, You know, I think there's a misunderstanding both and maybe not like with you in general, but like maybe a lot of the property owners that I have spoken with, you know, as far as landlords, a lot of them are very insensitive. You know, um, I, I don't see that coming from you. you yeah, know? We, we do our best. When you have rents that are under market, that is you trying to help as best you can. I mean, you should be making more money off your property. That's the reason why you're in business, right? I mean, it's to make money at it. It's not to make, you know, an insane gut-wrenching amount of it beyond i mean but it is it, it's you know that's what you know the point of it is is to do that you know so when i hear like you know people saying that you know as far as that goes like you know you're not you're not being fair right mm-hmm. well, yeah i think back to i mean and i don't know if you've heard me talk about this but i think back to this uh 
to this documentary I was watching on Roman times where they found this tablet of this average guy who was talking about some of his issues that he was having in life. One of them was, what is he going to do if uh, for his next meal? Right. Mm-hmm. So he was worried about food. He was just like, what do I do if I get sick? Right. You know, cause that's the other thing, healthcare, who, what, am, who's going to take care of me. And then how do I pay the rent? Yeah. Right. So these are things that from the Roman times are never going to change, right? I mean, they were always going to have high rent because that's what it is. It's just the expense of what it is to live in a, in a convenience of having a home. And it's never going to be cheap or affordable or free, right? It's right. going to cost somebody something somewhere. And the private market is by far the best way to provide good quality homes for a reasonable price. And I don't think a lot of people recognize how valuable it is to be able to rent a home, you know, from somebody. I mean, if you can't have it for yourself, you know, you should be thankful that you can, even if it is expensive, that you can rent from somebody. Um, Because believe me, I found myself in a spot where I couldn't find a place to rent. And it was because they didn't want my dog. Right. And I'm like, man, I will pay you a lot of money. You know, I have money to give you. And they're like, no, sorry, no dog. You know, it, it, is, it was like, man, how can you be so unfair? You know, and, but it's their property, right? You know, right. I don't want it all flashed by a dog. And I totally get that. Yeah. yeah. So one of the numbers that I want to kind of blow your mind with is, um, and I don't think a lot of people know this. So the emergency rental assistance program that came out um, from uh, from the federal government, where they basically then gave money to states, and then the state's responsibility was then to administer that money into people's hands. I think what most people don't know is there was market rent, which is FMR, fair market rent. That's something that the HUD, uh, a division of the government, Housing and Urban Development, comes out every single year, and they have something called FMR, fair market rents. Those fair market rents are what they believe is the fair market rent price for a unit, whether studio, all the way up through a five-bedroom in a given environment or given uh, area. What's really interesting about that is that Section 8 uh, or housing, uh, housing options, housing authorities, it's different for every state, what they call them. It's different for every county. Um, so what's really interesting is that typically their number is based on FMR. So typically, if you have an FMR, that's typically what your housing authority or section eight in your area is going to be able to be able to pay based on their governmental approval. What I found really interesting, one of the things I think that you're brilliant about is supply chain. I believe that things got broken because these programs to ensure people not only stayed in their homes, but they got people into homes that have not been in apartments for years, i.e. they were homeless or living in shelters those emergency rental assistance programs actually approved up to 200% of FMR. Wow. So you're the economics guy. I think my, my belief is you took a bunch of people, a subset of the population that's not living somewhere that isn't currently taking up a, a rental space as we speak today and now you're saying not only do you get to get a space, but on top of that, we are willing to pay 200% of the fair market value of that unit in order to place them. 
This is straight up sub- subsidizing the prices. It is. It's actually straight doing up. worse. It's pushing them up. That's what I'm saying. It's straight yeah. up subsidizing. It's subsidizing yeah, straight, straight right through the roof. Most people don't know that when that money was approved, that I believe it was $51 billion that was then handed out to states. Most people don't know that when it was approved for that 200% FMR is that then they're looking at me and saying, hey, listen, we know they don't qualify for credit. We know they don't qualify on rental history. We know they don't qualify, but because of that, we're willing to pay more. And I just said, well, I wanted to help out when I found that I've helped, tried to help people in my own, i.e. without structure, without a program around it. I fail at that. I'm not very good at it. Um, I think it's really difficult because I can't help the people in the spot that they're in. They really do need like a caseworker that can actually work with them. And so we've failed in those endeavors um, because we weren't able to basically work with them and work on accountability kind of on an ongoing basis. And so I felt like, okay, this is great. There's a structure now. Now we can put some money, put some units into that program. So we did put some units into that program. But then I start finding out that people are getting approved and they're like, oh yeah, well, I have ERAP. I have the emergency rental assistance program. I'm already approved. And so I know that that unit's $1,500, but I can pay $2,500. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yep. Okay. So here's, here's, so here's something as far as the theory that I was having about the inflation scenario that we're experiencing, because John Williams in a speech back in 2018 was talking about how the Federal Reserve is fighting a constant stream of swimming upstream against a constant flow of deflation is the way he kind of ex- explained it, mm-hmm. and that they were going to have to have a scenario in which they had higher inflation. So we're experiencing that now. Right. I mean, this higher inflation thing. When I think about the reasonings behind it, it's because the Federal Reserve knows in order to have a functioning monetary policy, they have to have a functioning mortgage market. Yes. And so it's very interesting to think about what it is that you can do during a recession that will keep a functioning mortgage market going, because I don't think it's necessarily about the prices. I don't think the Fed is concerned about what the price is. I think what they're concerned about is making sure that that mortgage market doesn't freeze up Correct. and that at any time that somebody wants one, whether it's a good loan or not, it doesn't matter. But if they want a loan, they can get one. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's really where the Federal Reserve is making sure that this this thing happens. Now, something I find interesting is that. There's two types of buyers, right, of homes, right, the one who's going to buy it for income, the one who's buying it to live in. Right? Yes. So. If you can create a situation in which that these rents remain elevated, then you will have the institutional buyer, right? The, the investing buyer to, mm-hmm. to be in that market Correct. almost no matter what, Correct. especially if you have a situation in which that, you know, they would be charged 15, but they can get 25. I mean, 
that is a scenario in which that even if you have a freezing or a not a necessarily a freezing, but a difficult mortgage market where interest rates are high, how are you going to have a downturn in the housing market prices if you have elevated rents in such ways, right? Mm -hmm. This is something that actually Cantillon talked about. He says towards the end of a system of expansion, that there's no better way of judging how far the expansion has gone by looking than looking at rents. Rents is it. And so when you have the government like almost guaranteeing that you're going to have an elevated rent, it shows that the flow of money coming into the system is like reaching its limits. You know, it's it's coming to its to its peak. You know, how far that can go from here, I don't know, but it's just one of those signs. Well, that's one of the interesting things is, right, is that those units, you know, what was really challenging was, is we tried to work with the program. And so we do, we give a portion of our units to all these different programs. So we have kind of our free market rents, we have some housing rents, we have um, another state program for rents, and then we have emergency rental assistance program rents. So those are, you know, again, we always have our, our diversification within our portfolio, but we also want to try and help people and recognize that when we were trying to do it ourselves, it wasn't going very well because we aren't case managers. However, when we had case managers now into the mix, we're like, hey, this is something we definitely want to give a shot to and see if it might have something that, that might work out. What's really interesting is, is that people think that the money is going to continue forever. New Hampshire just released yesterday that they have actually, the program, because it has no, long, no longer has federal funding, is going to be cut off December 29th. Uh-oh. Yep. So... Now we have the challenge of, as of December 29th, no more checks are going to be coming out of that program. No one now is able to apply for that program. And people that have been on the assistance before no longer can reapply for assistance. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So here's the next step in this. The next step in this is that we've had four people complete the program where they got 18 months of benefit do you would you like to guess how many of those people with within that first month actually started paying rent again four different households they're they're basically they got their rent paid for 18 months how many of those four households are still paying rent none zero none of them zero yeah and this is yeah. after an 18-month benefit, in some cases, that was $40,000 over 18 months. Their rent was paid for for 18 months, $40,000. And we gave them 90-day notice, 60 days notice, 30 days notice. Hey, guys, your benefit's exhausted. On July 1st, you are going to owe rent. And Wow. Now and they are- still failed. Over, and that was after 18 months. So I take that to you for your interpretation and interested in your thoughts and feelings on that because you guessed it. So what made you guess? What made you guess right? <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't, I guess it's probably because like, I just understand like, the mental conditioning of people once they start becoming accustomed to something, you sure. know, um, it's enabling. And once you end the enable, you know, the, the enabling behavior that you have given to this person, right. All hell breaks loose on it. It's yeah. just like taking drugs away or alcohol or anything else, you know, 
um, once that person becomes accustomed to it, they very rarely does anybody really truly take advantage of what was offered to them. They might think about it for a couple of months, but then after a few months of just having this constant ability to just spend money freely without having to pay rent, you just finally get to the point, well, this is the way life is. And then the day that it does snap back to reality, they're not prepared to deal with that. Yeah. Um, funny thing about reality, it scares the hell out of most people. They don't <laughs> like it. Um, that's going to be interesting as far as the impact that it has on a lot of people. Um, I don't like, I mean, I would like to know the numbers of how many people are still or are going to experience this, um, mm -hmm. you know, going into, into the future. Um, that could be some serious impact onto the rentals that are out yes. there, but still the high rents that are in demand. I, I don't know how much that's actually going to start bringing them down as opposed to maybe stop causing them to continue to go up. I mean, if that's, that makes sense. Um, you could probably find in some areas, if it's really drastic, where there was a lot of this rental assistance that is not, you know, taken advantage of by the, by the people, you know, so that they can actually move back into paying rent again. I guess there's probably going to, going to be some areas that are going to get hit really hard by that um, as yeah. opposed to others. In the grand scheme of things, what it has on the housing market impact is I still see that right now, even though prices of homes are coming down, I don't, I, or not necessarily coming down. I'd say stop going up as much. There is some areas in which they are, they are coming down, but I still like, as far as like significant, like, you know, move in the housing market, I just see where they've like, kind of stalled out as far as going up and then like I said in some areas it goes down but as far as like having a continual impact on it um I guess that could on the on the demand out there but still I think with the amount of people out there who are probably willing to pay rent that even if they came down just a little bit those rentals would get occupied pretty quickly um yeah you know in in my opinion at least at this point um you know if we saw unemployment rise that might be a different story yeah, if you guys ever want to know how good Simon is at this, I gave him none of the data, but I'm going to now support his argument with the actual data. Oh, right on. <laughs> Dude, you're this, you're this, I'm telling you, man, you're this good. I'm just telling you. I'm telling you. So here's what's actually happened in our markets. What we've seen is a crash in transactions. We've gone in the market. If you look at the real estate market, we were doing about 7 million houses a year. And now at the number of transactions that we're doing, we're on pace to do four, six to four, eight. What's going to happen is that's going to dive even further. I believe we get into the three millions area of transactions a year. And then it creates what I know the uneducated economist loves is it's a lack of supply, but there's still demand. And so that's going to keep product elevated in cost because that's exactly what he called out in lumber, which was awesome. I actually did this amazing chart because I hate crash videos with a passion. And so if you look at this chart, this basically goes back all the way to 720, which is July of 2020. And the median house price was 337, but you could get a mortgage at 3.07%. So your payment was only $1,433. But we've progressed, right? But crash videos all up and down YouTube, all in this time frame. January of 21, it was a $369,000 house, but rates were 2.65. So your payment was still only 1486. Now you look at 721, July of 21, $382,000 was the median price of a home. 
but you were at 2.98 for a mortgage. So your payment was still only 1600 bucks. Well, now we really start to escalate. January of 22, $433,000 median home price, but rates were still only at 3.1, but you're at 1848. How many guys in June of 20 and January of 21 were calling crash, 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 and people weren't buying homes? My buddy Simon bought a home. Good for him because the numbers are going to look amazing because you go from a $1,433 payment in July of 20 to a $1,600 payment in 21. But here's the big jump. One of 22, a $433,000 median home, you have a 3.1% mortgage. You're still at $1,848. So you're still 400 bucks more in a payment. That's pretty pricey. But most of it is being driven from the value of the home. Now let's get to July of 22, just three months ago, $446,000 was the median home price, but the rate was 5.3%. And your payment was $24.76, a full thousand dollars more than up here, a full thousand bucks more. And then still crash, crash, crash. It got worse. This is the estimated number for, uh, for, for October which is 430, i.e. the price went down from 446 to an estimated 430. And the rates were six, seven. Well, guess what? Rates are now seven and a quarter. But guess what the payment is? 2776. That's the payment now. So if you waited for a year, for two and a half years, all you saw was your payment go from 1433 to 2776. That's all you saw happen. So while I agree that a correction has to come in the market because all of these rates are so elevated, the rates are going to continue to go up. And the only question is, will the rates and the cost of that payment be outpaced by the decrease in the values? Because by math, every one point that goes up, the property value is supposed to go down 10%. That's the old moniker. It price goes down 10%. No, no, no. Your pricing power or your ability to buy goes down 10%. So now we're 400 basis points higher than where we were just a year ago. We're 400 basis points higher. And what's happened? Houses have continued to go up. So eventually I think we'll hit a traction and an inflection and a rollover point where median house prices will start to go down. But if rates continue to rise or even stay the same, we're not getting back any of the dollars that we got in 2020 and 2021 we're still having to buy an overvalued house, technically overvalued house. So when I look at those numbers, I see largely some on the same side of things on, there there was no real catalyst here in that market except for rates. So I think the catalyst on the rental side is when you have the government basically backstopping rents and saying, well, we can go up to X. What it did was it actually stole supply from normal market renters and housing section eight renters paid an inflated premium here, but that premium is going to disappear. And the question is, is that what you'll see from section eight and also from real market rents, that numbers come up and come up significantly 40% in the last two years. So I think the supply and demand remains undefeated. And I think that every single time I post a unit on a Friday, I get a hundred inquiries within the first 24 hours, a hundred. I don't need a hundred people that want my place. I need one that qualifies. Right. And so right. based, based, so what are your thoughts based on all that, uh, all that uh, info I just dropped? 
Right. Well, I mean, I guess the number one thing that I think about right there is it's like with the interest rates rising, driving up the payments on a house as high as they have, mm -hmm. the equivalent to rent. Yes. Right? Like, you know, yes. this is where, it, so like, you know, the whole idea of renting a, a piece of property is that it's going to be cheaper than making the payments on a house. Right. And so that like that was kind of like the, the narrative out there that people would right. have this desire to rather rent than pay a house is because you can rent cheaper than you can buy a house for. Mm -hmm. But if the house payments go up that dramatically high and the level of, of available rental rental properties is low, that's going to continue to drive the rents up. Right. That's I right. mean, that's that's I, I mean. So here it is in a situation in which that we should have experienced a crash, right? Because when the interest rates go up, the whole thing is going to come down. It caused the prices of rents to go up. That's right. right? And the government subsidized that idea yes. with what you were saying right there. Yes. Um, you know, it's funny how Janet Yellen said that she doesn't think that we'll ever have another recession in our lifetime. Is it is it no wonder why when you have this sort of manipulation happening within the markets? Yeah, you know, right? Um, it's like all we have to do is sprinkle some more government dust over here, and we're going to um, create an outcome, right? Right. Now, I couldn't say that you know how long that could last forever. How you know how much you know efforts they continue to put into it, but being aware of this process and what's happening here puts you in a really good position, doesn't it? One would think, yeah. Yeah. No, it really I mean, does. What what got me in the best position was watching all of your stuff on lumber because I've actually got three massive projects that I put off 18 or 18 months ago and we're doing them this winter and it was a massive savings and it was because lumber is now 350 for an 8 footer and it was 996 for an 8 footer and this crew is actually happy to get the work. Where they're not squeezing me in and making time for me. And I was like, I didn't realize we were so close. You know, they're, right. they're making that time for me. But one of the other things I wanted to hit you on with the rent standard, uh, this, is, this is the newest rent standard as out in my area from house, the housing authority, which is basically what's, what used to be section eight. An efficiency, meaning just a studio, is $1,334 a month is what they're paying. A one bedroom is 1,478. A two bedroom is 1,876. A three bedroom is 2,441. And a four bedroom is $2,986 a month is what the housing authority is willing to pay for rents on those units. My goodness. So free market now for the longest time, housing and Section 8 were behind the free market with what the free market was paying for the longest time. And with these new numbers, they're, they're, at, they're at market or above. They're above. They're at market or above. And here's the crazy thing. The way that Section 8 or housing, and the reason I keep on using those terms interchangeably is because some people haven't updated their, their terminology in their head or on their um, or in their experience. And I just want to make sure that we're, we're making sure that people understand that I'm using those two, um, you know, interchangeably. Um, but the housing, what's really interesting about the housing authorities is that with these numbers, they are now at market or in some cases slightly above, but 
this has only just begun. This is a Karen Carpenter song because in the way that they count them is two years back over a span of five years. So the numbers that they're calculating are based on 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. Rents only really started to start to really increase in 20. They were increasing steadily along the way, but 20 was a big jump. But this number is going up for another two years because they haven't captured 2021 and 2022 in their rental calculations yet. Oh, wow. So let me ask you, why do you think the government is doing, why do you think this, why do you think this is happening? What what do you think the, uh, the goal behind it is? Oh boy. Um, I mean, I left my tinfoil hat in my other office. Right. Because you can have to put one on in order to get through that. I mean, it, 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 so what, what's also interesting is, is the expansion of that program. So section eight housing that was, um, and again, it's just, this is a line of demarcation because, and it's not a political statement whatsoever. It's much more, here's just the numbers. There were about 2 million vouchers in 2020. And then they added about, um, I believe it was about 100,000 vouchers that year. So it was about 2 million to 2.1 million. They just added 15% more in one year to this program. So now you're at more that's going into making this happen. 15% more vouchers. Yes. So this is like, this is expanding. Massive expansion. Because wouldn't you agree that if you have a program that's existed for, I don't know, 30, 40 years, if you have a program that's existed for 30 or 40 years and you're at 2 million, and then in one year you go to 2.1 and then the next year you're 15% greater than that. So you're, you know, call it two, three, I would call that massive expansion. Um, for a program that has existed for 30 or 40 years. Right. And that is too. And you know what that's going to do is it drives up the prices. It does. It drives up. Okay. Well, it takes, it takes supply out of the free market. Right. 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 Um, so just kind of, you know, going off of some of the things that I've read from the fed, you know, with this idea that the average inflation rate. So at some point the federal reserve is anticipating that all these elevated prices are going to start coming down and come down for some time to end up at an average inflation. Right. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, you have this, you know, over time, this 2% average inflation. Mm -hmm. So it leads me to believe that they are elevating the prices up at some point to deal with this downturn, um, whether the prices actually come down or just stay stagnant That's exactly at right. some point, you know, in order to make up for this. But it seems to me that they are doing a massive effort to try and keep these things elevated. They know that there's a deflationary situation coming. Um, and it, it's just like, I mean, these efforts would only say that it's either that or they're attempting to separate the availability of being able to purchase a house. Like either you're going to be rich and available or you're poor and you're renting. And that's, and that's mm-hmm. all there is to it. Now, a lot of people will probably move towards that kind of idea. Um, I don't know. I think it's probably. Man, that's a tough one. One because yeah. being doing this on purpose is going to lead to a separation in the classes. It's just going to. I I think whether that's whether that's happening on purpose or it's just an economic event that is just occurring that gives the availability for this to happen. 
Yeah. Either way, it's still part of the Cantillon effect. Yeah, because yeah. what drives – so th- the reason that I say I don't care if the rate's 4%, 8%, or 18%, I don't care what the rate is. I don't care even what the property costs. The only thing that an investor looks at is what's the return on the capital that I put into the deal. If I put $100,000 into buying a rental property and those rents are $3,000 per side per month, it's $6,000 guaranteed. Well, even if the rate is 18% and my mortgage payment is $4,500 or or $5,000, but I'm making $1,000 a month net cash flow, who wouldn't invest $100,000 for a $12,000 return over a year at a 12% return on capital. Yep. That's a great no, return on capital. That's, that's exactly right. That, and, that's exactly right. And when you're Wall Street, you're doing it in cash. We're not their competition. They will do whatever they want and will do it based on the returns, the risk adjusted returns that they can get. That's why Wall Street has said, we're going to go from owning, you know, of the market to like 16% of the market. They want to own 770,000 single family homes over the next 10 years. Do you think they're dollar cost averaging? No, they're going in there and they're like, Hey, you're a builder. You're stuck with 47 homes right now. We'll buy them all. We want you to make 5%, not 20%. So we'll buy the whole package and then they make them rentals. The problem is, is that what happens in these tight economies, like what you and I've been talking about, which is banks tighten standards, debt to income has to be lower. Then they give you that much less credit. They're that much more nervous. And then they don't stop doing loans, but it's like everybody, well, they don't do the same loan that they used to because they're not letting you have a 50% debt to income ratio. They want 25. They're not saying that you have to have a three month emergency fund. They're saying you have to have an eight month emergency fund. And all it does is have them lending to people that are basically zero risk. When you don't need the money, the bank is there ready to give it to you. When you need the money, they are giving you the Heisman. I've experienced as an individual myself when I was starting my business, I had to literally tie steak around my neck to get dogs to play with me. And and now they call me and they're like, so do you have any upcoming projects? And I was like, "Hmm, interesting. My, 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 how the tables have turned. But but it's, but I'm, I've experienced it myself. And so the concern that I have is yes, with these elevator rents, I think that's a problem, but I'm not sure if you saw that bank of America came out with a program, um, a lending program. And the lending program is this no credit score requirement, no income requirement. And they'll give you a $17,500 credit towards closing. What in the world? Yes. It's a program. It exists. They trialed it for about five months, six months. Um, and they said, hey, here's the good news. We didn't really have any default rates. If you're trying to tell me that those loans aren't going to be a whole lot more suspect than a loan from a guy with a 720 credit score, or a family with a 700 credit score and $150,000 a year of income, that there were some requirements in that loan. And some of it was no, no um, non-income. Some of it was non-credit score. It's a Bank of America product. I think that 
I think that banks are going to start coming out with, because this is what banks do when, when 93% of the market, 93% of the market has a sub five to five mortgage rate and rates are in the eights. What do they start doing? They start coming without out with elaborate programs. And so I just got emailed. I talked to a ton of bankers. I just got emailed an offer for an owner occupied property. It's a 10 year arm at five, five. Whoa. So the normal person looks at that and says 5.5. Well, my rate would be 7.5. Why don't I just do a five, five with a 10 year arm? Because the bank's sitting there thinking, well, over the 10-year period, the property's value is going to increase. And so if they get in trouble, they can always sell. And the homeowner's saying, well, I don't want the 7.5 payment or the payment based on 7.5. I want the one at 5.5. So they take them up on that offer. Now, it's not like the 2 and 28s and the teaser loans that happened in 06 and 07, but it still leaves a pretty big matzo ball out there 10 years down the road or on the arms that are fives and sevens. I got quoted on a seven. I got quoted six, three, seven, five on a seven year adjustable rate mortgage, six, three, seven, five. But that's when the rates for owner ops were seven, five and seven, seven, five. So what does you, you could probably explain to our viewers better than I could. When you create product like that, what's, what does it do? What does it do to a market? What it does is it starts creating mortgage-backed securities. It does. Right? Yep, it does. Um, In this is something market. interesting to think about. Yeah. Um, to create these sort of instruments, like especially with the idea that you come into the end of a housing market increase, it's just like hurry up and get these things out before the crash happens. Yep. You know, like if that's a preliminary sign, like, you know, Kind of like one of those things, um, you know, like, you know, those two-cycle motorbikes, you know, back in the day, right before they ran out of gas, they would rev up as they sucked in a lot of air, you know, wind up real high just before they would run out of gas. Is that kind of the same thing? Is that kind of like a good analogy of this? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's like, oh, shoot, we're coming to the end. We know that these prices or at least the availability on these home prices continuing to go up might be an issue. Just hurry up and get these packages out as fast as possible before. Now, a lot of people would be like, well, why would the bank even be remotely close to doing this, considering that you're almost guaranteeing that people are are going to be in a tough position to make these payments, mm-hmm. is that there's an insurance policy that is attached to all these Correct. mortgage-backed securities. Mm-hmm. You know, And that was really like the big thing that happened during the great financial crisis is that as these mortgage-backed securities started to fail, it started kicking in a bunch of insurance policies that people didn't realize how big that market was, and it started dragging things down. This is the AIG issue, yep. you know, where uh, these credit default swaps started kicking in. Yep. So when you had these packages being produced, now again, let's put the tinfoil hat on, right? You know, so when you have these packages being produced, and you know, all of a sudden you have these mortgage-backed securities that have these potentially toxic assets in them, in them. Um, that gives the availability of sale of the insurance policies as well. Mm-hmm. So you can create these toxic assets, so to speak, and then just go crazy buying up the insurance policies for them. Well, that's and what buy way more about, insurance yeah. policies, right? Then these yeah. now again, this is this is this is stuff that has happened in the past. So it's like you know, could it happen again? Absolutely, it could. 
So if you are going to take advantage of a downturning housing market, you're going to want to take advantage of those insurance policies kicking into gear, those credit default swaps. Mm-hmm. There's no better way than to buy those things than to assure that you are creating a toxic asset. That's a good way to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Give people very good interest rates. And then here in a few years, bang, they get hit with a higher one that they're not ready for or may not be ready for. Sure. Uh, you know, so that kind of thing could happen. Um, how to prove that or find that information, I'm not exactly sure because that credit, you know, default derivatives market is a very shadowy system in which that not even the Federal Reserve quite knows how big and what's going on there. Um, you know, and that sort of thing occurs all over the world in many ways. You know, there's shadow currency systems as well. But mm-hmm. that would be something that I would be that that kind of rings like, you know, starts ringing a bell for me, an alarm bell saying, man, you got these things getting created at the height of a housing market with the potential of a credit default swap issue like that. It just makes me wonder who's going to profit from it. You know. Well, I think that that's right on. I think the thing that we saw back in the last collapse um, was two and 28 teaser rates, pick your payment for two years. Uh, and so what it did was is in, if you were doing those mortgages in 05 and six and seven, then those were what defaulted in eight, nine and 10. And that's why it took years. The U.S. housing economy was negative uh, for five years. It was negative for five years. The worst year was 09, where I think it was about 8.9%, which was the worst single year decline. However, cumulatively, it was in those five years, it was like 30%. So it was significant moves within that. But I think what's really interesting is, is with a 10-year I mean, I'm looking at that 10-year and saying, if I'm looking at it from a mathematics perspective, for 10 years, I'm going to have wage growth for 10 years. I'm going to have house appreciation for 10 years. And I'm saving 2% on my rate right now. I think that might actually be a decent product because it's 10 years out. Even the five stuff, the stuff that really scares me is the, is the five-year stuff. Because if you look at 1979 to like 1988, rates, it took that long for rates to get from the low nines back to the low nines, but it peaked at 16, 16. And then we had three years, I think then 13 and then 10, 10 and 10. We had a lot of years in there that were still double digit rates. And if you're having to go from a five, five to a double digit rate, that's going to upset the apple cart. I think no matter how much wage inflation you've gotten, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that's kind of like the the nice thing about having that tenure is that that distance, because I mean, yeah. who knows what's going to happen in the next 10 years? I right. mean, yeah, it's like, you know, your wages could double, you know, from in the next 10 years and then like making the making the payment on, you know, on that next loan may not be a big deal, you know, on, on what you got going on. But uh, that is such a it it is so. It is such a difficult thing to try and and predict out there um you know as far as like i can see things like i think interest rates are going to remain elevated for some time i don't think they're going to stay elevated for 10 years though i agree well might for five years you think they're going to stay elevated for 10 no i think you're right i think it's i think it's probably more of a five-year phenomenon i really do but i think that when you create 80 percent the cash right 40 percent and then 31 percent when you put that much cash in the market i think even with quantitative easing I think the rest of the world is in trouble with how strong the King dollar is. Yeah. And oh, I it's, think, 
you know, and we, we, in the real estate market, there was a lot of foreign investment for a very long time, very long time. Europeans, uh, Asia pack, they would come into the country and they would buy up a lot of really expensive assets that were, you know, on the water in Miami and on the water in California. So I think we have elevated rates for probably five years. I don't think that this big pivots coming in where the feds like, you know what, we're good with inflation at about eight even though we got a bunch of the inflation down because we tapped sp- sp- uh, the petroleum reserve, SPR, that was a large part of the inflation coming down was that gas has come and oil's come way down, but it's because we tapped into so much of that. That's my belief. But I think it's probably over a five-year period. We still have elevator rates. I don't think they're coming out. I don't see Powell coming out and going, I'm going to do a reverse Volcker. We're going to take us from four and a quarter down to two. Like how much would the, the stock market would explode up but how much, but, but that would put us in a worse spot than we even were six months ago, getting into this bad spot we're already in. Yeah. Um, no, this is, the, they're trying to um, unwind some of the uh, irrational exuberance that has taken place. I mean, they really are. That's the yeah. the whole point of the, of the lifting of interest rates and keeping them elevated. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as that, how long they go for, that's going to be the interesting question because you're already hearing talks about pivot and it's just like i mean in like everything that i have read and like gone i was just like man where do they come up with this idea that the fed is going to pivot like i just don't see that happening we we um, say we like to say that they're smoking their own fair share of hopium hopium that's really what it is i mean i think that's really what it comes down to is that they really hope that it's that it's going to happen yeah. um you know i mean because the federal like it's kind of funny like Good news is bad and bad news is good when it comes right. to what the market inter- anticipation of what the Fed is going to do. Like, you know, if it's really bad news out there, well, then the Federal Reserve, they're not going to keep lifting interest rates. They're going to actually lower interest rates. And then the market loves that idea and it shoots up. Right. So like the market loves it when there's bad information coming out that will cause the Federal Reserve to not want to raise interest rates. Like I, it just blows me away that the market is looking for bad news. Yeah. Right. Isn't that strange? Yeah. You know, to me, it's like they want to hear about things that are going to cause the Federal Reserve to reverse course, and that'll cause yes. the markets to go up. It just like I, I stand back and I just shake my head, and I was like, "Does anybody else find this counterintuitive?" You know, it was like I mean, I, I'm not. I, I mean, I'm not much of an investor. I really don't know, but that doesn't seem right to me that you would look for bad news in order for the Dow to go up. I don't know. Well, that's um, and and that's one of the things that I'm talking to my buddies about that are in the market and not in real estate. You know, they're just like, oh man, they, we just need to see a horrible jobs report. I was like, you do realize that people are losing jobs, right? Like, that's, but, but that's a person. That's not just a, a number and a metric. Like, that's an actual person losing their job, no longer able to afford food for their family, but because you want, you know, your stock to go up another five cents. Like, come on, like, right? And then, honest to God, think about like the long term. Of- to that it's like you're you're saying that you want somebody to lose their job cause the unemployment to rise that way the federal reserve will pivot and then your stocks will go up but the only problem is is that the stocks are going up on an idea that the federal reserve is going to pivot because you have such horribleness happening within the economy right like like why would you want to invest into that like yeah. like i mean to me it just I don't know. Like people are just so stuck on this idea that they just want to see their numbers go up. Like they don't really want to see a fundamental strength happening yeah. like that. They don't, they, they, they don't care about that part. They just want to see right. the digits go up. Yeah. Well, we see it the same thing in like the real estate market, which is guys are all out counting doors and oh, I have this many doors and I have this much. And I, I 
we talk about that just from a credibility perspective. So we can tell people, listen, we're not like five doors. We're a really, we're a pretty good sized company. We, we operate that company. We work with our tenants, these, but we've built our company over 22 years. And while we grow faster now than we used to, we still grew in a very measured format for a lot of years um, in order to build that proper foundation that gave us then the model where we could then expand. I did want to make one correction to something that I had said, though. So Bank of America announced a new zero down payment, zero closing cost mortgage solution, zero down payment, zero closing costs. So basically, the only thing you're bringing to the table is a credit score. That's the only thing you're bringing. And the credit score isn't a normal credit accounting. It's a special purpose credit program being run by Bank of America. And they have uh, they are looking at $15 billion that they're going to put into this program. $15 wow. billion to be. Yeah. I'm sure I mean, the mortgages will be high quality. Yeah, it just seems like a toxic asset farm. Exactly. A hundred, of course, you have a decent credit score, but you're not bringing any skin to the game. Like if, if you're right. buying a house at $700,000, even if it corrects 10%, and now it's worth $630,000, if your payment stayed the same, you should stay because you were approved based on your credit. And that should mean something. However, we know how people's psychology works, which is, it's worth that much less. I, I don't, I'm just going to stop paying my mortgage because I want to pay for $700,000 for something that's only worth 630 k right? And that's, that's the methodology. What really tripped things up back in 08 and 09 and then led to the years later was 52% of mortgages were adjustable rate mortgages. And so because they were teasers or two and 28s, meaning you get to pick your own payment for the first year, but then it went to, then it, then it basically re-amortized over 29 years and whatever you didn't pay then got recapped. And then you're paying that much larger amount. Well, no one was getting financially tested for if they could make that adjusted payment because the variable in that first year was, we have no idea if they're going to make a $1 payment, a $100 payment, or a $2,000 payment towards their $2,000 mortgage. So they couldn't even forecast the likelihood of those things becoming toxic assets. The only people that knew those were toxic assets were people that look at it and go, there's no skin in the game. They can walk because they lied on their liar. They were called liar loans, Nina's no income, no assets, or in some cases, ninja loans. Those were the nastiest of them all. No income, no assets, uh, no job or no job, no assets. But there were people still getting approved. But those assets right now in today's market, they don't exist. And variable rate mortgages are only about 11% of home loans. So those mortgages right now don't largely exist. However, it would appear as though Bank of America is trying to shift that tide based yeah. on a program like this, right? Right. And that's, and that's, where it's, that's what's so concerning about it. Like, I mean, if you're doing that at the height of the market like, or just cresting the peak, Right. It just seems that's what they're doing. Right. They're going to create a bunch of toxic assets with the anticipation that people are going to fail and they'll cash in on the credit default swaps. It just seems like a likely like if that occurs, then we called it out just now. Right. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. I mean, if that's if that's what yeah. ends up happening. You yeah. Know? We're, I guarantee you this vintage, it's going to be like a sour wine. Right. You're going to taste nothing but vinegar. I'm guaranteeing yeah. you this vintage of loan is going to be a far worse loan in the next five years than any other vintage of loans. 
because yeah. there's no skin in the game. It's purely credit-based and it's an adjusted credit scoring system is literally what this is saying, um, yeah. which brings concern thoughts. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, just think about it from like, you know, I mean, from the borrower's point of view, it's like, hey, this is really awesome. You know, we get to get in. But think about it from like the lender's point of view. Like you're the lender. You're the one who's going to be lending money out for this. And you're cool with this. Going into a recession where there's going to be high, you know, where the Federal Reserve is promising that we're going to try and have higher unemployment. Right. I mean, does I mean, does that I mean, just to think about it, just standing back and looking at it, it's like that doesn't make any sense unless what unless something else is going to occur you know well, i mean it does make sense it's the fi- it's financial engineering right and i think that when we look at this i think the the challenge is is that banks make a lot of money servicing loans but rarely are they keeping them on their paper they're usually bundling them up as 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 an asset and then selling that asset and often it's being offlaid off their books to fannie and freddie and so right. they're then getting their fees for servicing but here's where the crazy thing is because of people have below a 525 mortgage. How many people are refinancing right now into a cozy 75? None people. Zero people. So refis are non-existent. So what do these guys need to do? They need to keep the ball rolling. They need to make sure that they're still selling these mortgages because they need to have an asset that they can A, sell off and B, charge somebody to service. The problem is, is that with a program like this, maybe I'm wrong. I think all you're doing is kicking the can down the road. And I think that the default rate on a program like this is going to be far greater than your real A-class, not the way they used to count A's and B's, but your real A-class debt, where you look at it and say, people in this were 700 credit scores and higher, and they were you know, 30, 32% debt utilization or DTI, debt, debt to income ratio. Um, I think that these types of assets, I think, become a problem. The only hope is, is that they don't create CDOs out of them and start slicing and dicing them into 10 percenters and then putting them into a bunch of different products that they're then bundling off to other banks, because that's what made it so difficult to untie it last time. Yeah. Oh, that'll happen. Them up. Right. That, and, that, that'll and, happen. Right. And so what's that mean? Like, where's that put us? That puts us in. They're doing it on purpose. Yeah, I mean, they kind of know what the program is that they're creating. And what I don't like is that it's done under the guise of we're here to help and create opportunity for more people. Don't people Support, up to fail. Yeah, supporting households and businesses. It's kind of I do, yeah. But that um that is very interesting because you did say something. They yeah. packaged it, package this stuff up so they have something to sell. Think about yes. that. If yes. they didn't do it, they would be out of business. They wouldn't have like, That's how right. are they going to go and buy their groceries if they don't have something to sell? Yes. And the only way they can sell something right now is to create these, this shit. This is what happens. And you watch it in the economies last time when, in, when adjustable rate mortgages came on, it's what added absolute, absolute fuel to the fire of housing prices expanding because people buy not based on what the property costs. They buy it based on the payment that they can afford. And if I can go from a payment that was, you know, 2774 at a 6.7 rate, and now all of a sudden I'm getting a five, or now it's seven six and I'm getting a five five. And so I can knock a few hundred bucks a month off my payment. I can afford that much house. That keeps the pricing of the house elevated. 
And if I'm getting approved on that based on income, that's good so long as I have my job. And that's then what perpetuates is in the crash that happened in 07, 08, and 09. When that happened, it was so many of these assets that were then terming and people getting that bump up in payment. In this, it's at least a fixed payment for a longer period of time. So I think that a 10-year, it might be enough time, even though if you look at the 70s to the mid-80s, rates were basically very high elevated up into the 16s from nine. And that happened for 10 years. But if you're looking at a five, if you did a deal in 1978 or 79 and you were an eight or a 9% mortgage, if it was five years later in 1984 or 85, guess what? You were looking at a 16% mortgage on your refi. 600 basis points, not even 200 basis points or 400 basis points, 600 basis points. That means your payment literally doubles. And I don't know if there's ever been a time in history where over a five-year period, wages have doubled. No, I, 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 I mean, there might've been like, you know, some hyperinflation scenario somewhere that it happened, but right. you know, not. Maybe Weimar not, Republic. Not, not here in the United States. <laughs> What's that? Maybe Weimar Republic. <laughs> yeah, like the Weimar Zimbabwe, something like that happened. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, as I look at it, I just think that uh, I, I think that rents are pretty stable. Mine continue to go up. People continue to tell me rents are going down. I think in certain markets, they certainly are going to go down, but my rents continue to stay elevated. We're seasonal here too, because no one really likes to move Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and January and February. No one really moves during those times. So there's usually not a lot of inventory, but there's also not a lot of lookers. Uh, but then it'll be interesting to see what kind of brings us from spring. Uh, Simon, as always, you're so gracious with your time. I really appreciate all the time you spend with us. Wanted you to get, wanted to give you the last word and, and just get kind of your thoughts based on all the stuff that we covered today with the housing market. And if you haven't checked out Simon's, I think it's an eight or nine minute video. It is spectacular. He like is like Red Bulls through it. And it's awesome. Like it was just like, fire in the data and i was like that's so right that's i mean which which one was that that was the one it was literally like eight or nine days ago it was talking about housing um i'll put a link in in below that way i can call it out specifically but it was like i said eight or nine maybe 10 minutes long and you just went right through housing and the fact that it's really not going to crash that there's that you think that there's correction i think there's correction coming but you yeah. think it's kind of within the margins it's not going to be this big massive drop because I think people don't understand. We're not going to do 7 million transactions anymore. We're going to do three, three and a half. It's going to be a small number, half as many transactions. And that leaves a lot of people related to the, to the housing industry out of work or at very less half income. You know, and I mean, this is such a big deal because like, you know, the house is the number one biggest investment that an individual is going to do. Like it is like, it's overwhelming. Like, I mean, it's life-changing to buy a house. And so it's most, you know, it's critical that you do it, you know, with confidence and at the right time and stuff like that. So everybody's always wanting to do it, you know, to try and figure it out. The way I kind of look at this stuff is I kind of just fill up like a hopper with information and just kind of decipher all that information and look for particular things, you know, I mean, why why would you see a downturn in the housing market right it would be because there's a lot of inventory or it's because there's going to be a lot of inventory coming to the market well what would cause that inventory is there a lot of builders happening well not really is there a rise in unemployment not yet 
if we do see a rise in unemployment, well, then that would be a reason why people wouldn't be making their payments. And then you could see foreclosures and stuff like that happening. But if you are going to see foreclosures, what is it you're going to see a foreclosure from? It's because they're not making the payments and they couldn't sell the house off. Well, even though they are coming down some, home prices are still quite elevated. So unless you happen to buy that house in the last six months and you're going in into a default or foreclosure, most likely you probably bought it years ago and you could just sell the house off even yes. you know for less than what it's going for on market and still not end up going underwater, actually walk away with money from it. So where's the housing downturn gonna come from, right? I mean, this is what I'm looking for. I wanna see certain signs that are gonna say, yes, we got a housing market crash coming. One of them is going to be a rise in foreclosures, and that's going to do it to the unemployment. So first, you have to see the unemployment rise. It's not there yet. <laughs> right? Yeah, I think I think you're hitting the nail on the head. That's what I loved about the video when you actually took people through that. Was yeah, that's I, I remember that one now. Yeah. What's you know what's going to bring all this supply? And I think that that's the thing is when it when we started falling apart in 07 and 08, and then we started seeing the effects in 09. The biggest thing that contributed to that was the bad products then bringing a bunch of supply. Foreclosures were 300,000 units a month. 300,000 units a month. A normal month is between 125 and 150,000 foreclosures. It was 2x, but the problem was we went into that financial nightmare with 3.5 or 3.6 million houses in supply. Now we only have like a million, two million, three million, four in supply. So what's that translate into? We have 2.2 million houses to go before we're even at the same supply that we were last time. Number one, number two is we have to triple our current foreclosure rate, triple our current foreclosure rate to get to the number of foreclosures that we need to even adding that level. And we have to do that for two years, even at reduced sales. It's just, to me, it spells, are we going to have a correction? Absolutely. Is it going to be a crash? I don't understand what fundamentally gets us there. Right. I mean, I'm not trying to say that it isn't going to happen. I mean, yeah. you can't predict the future. It's like, sure. could a housing market crash happen? Absolutely. But where's the signs of it? Let's, let's find... Let's find those evidence. Like, you know, I mean, that's that's it for me. Is just like I want to know what it is that's going to to be the reasonings behind it. And I'm searching for them. I mean, I want to find if there's a reason out there there's gonna be a housing market crash. I want to see it. I want to know about it and I'm looking for it. So I mean, it's like it's easy to look for information that will confirm your bias. Right. Okay. If you want to, if you if you're a silver investor and you want silver to go up, you can watch videos all day long of people sure. who are going to tell you about how silver is going to go up, and you can totally believe that. Mm -hmm. But if you are looking for reasons why silver is going to go down so that you can find your buying opportunity, it's a little more difficult. Right. But if you can find those reasons or you can you can come up with like, hey, I think there's a buying opportunity coming into the future. And these are the reasons why. Well, now you got evidence. You can look for those things. You can now, you know, make a better judgment on it. You know, that's really what it comes down to. I didn't realize it's going to be two years of foreclosures to bring it back up. I mean, that's is that what you said? Two years yeah, of, at the rate at the rate that we're foreclosing. You see, yeah. Yeah. At the rate that we're foreclosing, we're foreclosing. 130, 140,000 a month right now. The number back then was 300 and it 250 to 300 and it did it for two solid years, but we were starting off with a market of 3.6 million homes based on where we're starting right now at, at inventory levels that we have right this moment. It would take 
two years with even half the pace of which we're selling to even get to 3.6 million homes, which is a six month supply, which is what's called a balanced market. Yeah. Like that's, that's, that's a hell, that's a long ways. That's, that's a, a lot. lot. That's a that's lot. A lot. That's what, and the thing is, the banks really learned that foreclosures didn't work. So they're doing, at Black Knight actually tracked it and said, at our worst, we had 4.3, 4.4 million homes in forbearance. And now it's like 300 and something thousand. Well, oh, they're almost all out. Right. And so if you have three or 400,000, let's just get nutty. All of those go, get foreclosed on tomorrow. That gives you one month supply of housing. That's it. Just one month. One month. Current rate, one month. Yeah. yeah. So, so like, I just don't see it. I, I don't, that's what I'm saying. I don't see it either. And so I want to make sure that people are hopeful most in themselves, that they skill up, that they listen up, that they actually have well-rounded in what they listen to. Let's not all do crash videos. Let's do some stuff that builds us up, builds our knowledge and our better understanding of the market. And there are 500 housing markets in the U.S. You might be in a lousy one. You might be in a great one. But you'll only know is if you're doing the homework and understanding where those transactions are happening, why they're happening, and really get into it and better understand. Because that's going to be the elixir that makes people real winners in this turn is understanding exactly what they're doing. So I hope that we spent a bunch of time covering this today. I hope we encouraged some people, gave them some more facts that they can deal with and some things that they can research, even if it's that Bank of America program. Doesn't mean it might not work for you, um, but I want people have people check that out. But Simon, thank you again so much. Where can everybody find you, Simon? Uh, pretty much I'm active on YouTube, Uneducated Economist on YouTube. That's where I do most of my comments and talking. Uh, you can always send me an email, uneducatedeconomist at gmail. I do have all the other social medias, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, Patreon, stuff like that. But like I said, I'm pretty much active on YouTube. That's where I try to do most of my comments and, and talking and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's what we do. Just uh, try to do daily videos there. I've been a part of, you know, watching Simon and all the awesome stuff that he's done. I found his channel when he was sub 10,000 subscribers and now he's over 100,000 subscribers. What I can tell you is the live streams are awesome. It's 300, 400, 700 people. And it's absolutely worth a super chat to the man to get your question answered. He's great. I don't know how he does it on his phone, but he's phenomenal at getting to the super chat. So if you have a question based on the interview that we have here, just reach out to him on his next live stream, ask him, super chat the man, give him some money for his time because he's putting a ton of effort and energy into this for real people. And so make sure you reward that. Give the guy a super chat and make sure that you ask your question. I'm sure he'll make sure that he handles it for you. But Simon, again, you're always gracious for your time. Thank you so much for coming on the channel and I'll reach out to you again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matthew. This has Thank been a great talk. Anytime. Talk soon. Yep.